You know, every time I go to New York, I just fall more and more in love with that city. Well, I wanted to ask, like, when you were there, did you think, like, why did I ever leave? Because when I went to Seattle back in August or whatever I did, like, that was my thought was, like, why did I leave? Like, no, I mean, to be honest, like, the first couple of times I went back, yeah, I was like, oh, man, I really miss it. But I remember my first trip back, I was there for, like, five or six days. And by, like, the sixth day, I was like, get me home. I'm oh, done. Um, but New York is just go, 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 go. That's you don't fair. sleep. Like, you just, it's really intense. That's fair. Because when I was in Seattle, I, you know, still worked Monday through Friday. Because I was there, like, ten days. Yeah. But I worked the work days. And... A lot of I was there long enough that we didn't feel like we needed to fill every day with stuff. Right. We did do a lot of stuff, but you know there were definitely nights where you know I'd go to work, then I'd come home with my friend. We'd make dinner, we'd have wine, and maybe watch a movie or like it was chill. Yeah, a nice so chill trip. I never hit the like I want to go home. Well, and this was a long weekend where I got maybe 10 hours of sleep the whole time. That's awful. Which is why, as you can tell, I'm sick. Um, The allergies hit like crazy. And so I've got like sore throat and stuff going on. So apologies for my awkward sounding voice in this episode. But also with that, hello, I'm Brittany. I'm Tyler. And this is Blood and Wine. Blood and Wine, true crime podcast. Yeah. I don't know. We've never said it like that, but you know, we haven't. That's what but just a reminder: this is a true crime podcast, not a travel podcast. <laughs> not, the, okay, fair, fair point. Because <laughs> you know it could have very well sounded like that. Yeah, no, I get it. I will say though, just jumping back to New York yeah, or yeah. Seattle real quick. Um, Seattle in general is not a go 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 city. No, I remember that when I visited, it was a lot more relaxed and quiet and. Uh, I think that's one of the big things I miss about it. Because Austin's not go-go-go, but Austin is not, like, a relaxed, sleepy city either. No, it's not. It's Definitely just, not. Uh, I don't know. A city that I hate everyone the second I get in a car. I don't know. I've never yeah. felt the kind of, like, oh, my God, learn to drive as I have here. Yeah, no, it's true. Because I used to drive... I mean, I haven't really driven... You know, since for like three years, actually, because I would occasionally drive in Seattle. But I used to drive a lot. Yeah. Like, I'm fine deal with road people. But just the only thing in my mind that is worse driving wise that I've experienced than Austin is uh, like the I 35 in Dallas. Oh, God. Where it's like yeah. six trillion bridges, there's 300 exits, every lane is an exit, but you don't want to exit. I, but that's like frustrating for a different thing. Cause I'm like, where am I going? Who knows? Hope it's the right way. No idea. There's so many highways, so many uh, lanes, yeah. so many cars, so, so much, much anger. Yes. <laughs> I like how that's the part of the trip when we do drive home that it's like, we just kind of stop talking to each other because <laughs> we know whoever's driving just needs to concentrate. <laughs> yes. Got to concentrate in Dallas. <laughs> but, but anyways. Anyway. Yeah. I, I'm definitely gonna 
make it a point to go back to New York again here in a few months and see friends yeah. again and just yeah. see. I want to go and I want to do New York because I've been. You've only been that one time, right? No, I've been twice. Oh, twice, twice. I went in high school uh, to tour NYU, but we were just in New York for a day because uh, we were staying in New Jersey, and then. Oh, I've three been times. three times then. You've been three times. Because we all went as a family. To visit me. Yeah. Was it to visit you? Yeah. Okay. It was when I was in school. Okay. Because I remember uh, the, uh, the snowball fight we had, and it was like spring break. Yeah. Uh, that's specifically what I remember. That and then the pizza place under the Brooklyn Bridge. And then when I was flying back from Norway, mm-hmm. I spent like a week Your there. 21st birthday. Yeah, and turned 21. But I've never... I guess... Okay. I've done New York, but I've not done Manhattan ever. No, we did Brooklyn for your 21st birthday. Yeah, which I really liked. And we did yeah. start it in Manhattan. Yeah, and Mama surprised you by still being I there. Know. Oh, that was fun. It was. That was fun. No, one, no one can top my 21st birthday. Sorry, y'all. <laughs> <laughs> but. Well, a bit of an abrupt transition, but yeah. it's it's important, and I do want to jump into our newest uh, Patreon member. Uh, yes. Lynette, thank you so much for your support. Lynette is a Merlot Mafia member. Yeah. And... Yes, Lynette, thank you so, so much. Your support, like, we really appreciate it. And we are working on that website, guys. Yes. Uh, um, I know I said... Tyler overpromised I did. Because he didn't realize that websites are not something you can create a... In overnight? just a couple days, overnight. Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> There's a little bit more that goes into it. But um, but don't worry, that's coming. And so, yes. again, thanks to all of our Patreon subscribers. You're helping that become a reality. You are. We're looking more into merch. Mm-hmm. And, um, yeah, so things are mm-hmm. coming together. and Things we're are coming together. If y'all are really have... excited about all these, mm-hmm. these next steps coming because things, are, oh things my... are getting big. Things are getting big. There's a lot of stuff going on that we can't tell y'all yet. Yep. But, uh... Um, it's all very holy exciting. Holy shit, y'all. Like, I'm just saying. Just holy shit, y'all. And, it's super exciting. And we we couldn't do this without um, all of our listeners, but without all of our Patreon supporters as well. Like, it's just amazing. We have, like... Yeah. So much that we want to build and create for y'all. And just on the topic of merch, if y'all have any specific ideas of stuff y'all would want, you know, if yeah. it's t-shirts or uh, wine glasses or totes or anything like that, let us know um, yeah. when it's time to launch a merch store, which I can't even tell you a time frame yet. We need a website first. We um, need a website first and we have to look into how to produce all the different merch. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure we'll start with maybe a couple different things, like a t-shirt and a wine glass or a t-shirt and a tote. Yeah. And, and we'll expand based on demand based on like what y'all are wanting and based on just how it's going so yeah lots of super fun opportunities and to make sure you're not missing out on anything when all these new things when these new things come up because we talk about it obviously here on the podcast we do the most here more than anywhere else no that's true um be sure to subscribe to uh itunes google play stitcher all of those, everything, we're pretty much on all of mm-hmm. them. You can find us, Blood and Wine, a true crime podcast. Um, also, make sure to um, like to really be as up to date as possible. 
Uh, follow us on like Twitter and Instagram and Facebook. Yes. Uh, we're there. And I mean, honestly, if y'all have any questions or want to say hi, chat with us, that stuff literally just goes straight to our phone. So we'll probably answer pretty quickly. Yeah. Well, and on Instagram, we show like photos of the wines that we pick. So you can mm-hmm. actually see what we're talking about. And we l- we let you know what episode we talked about mm-hmm. that one in. We share crime scene photos. Or, um, I know. Well, the photos we did from, uh, what, two cases ago. A few cases ago. I'm not few sure. A few cases ago. I'm not sure. With Travis Alexander, you know, yeah. those photos that are were a big part of the case. Uh, yeah. You know, we have those on the Instagram. So it's, it's a nice, like, kind of visual thing. Because... Yeah. Obviously, it's Instagram, so we're not going to post, like, real gruesome stuff. Right. But, although... although you can find it. <laughs> I know. I was going to say, although, there is definitely a couple accounts I follow that are, like, medical weird stuff. Yes. So, what is the one? It's, like, a doctor it's, or something? It's Mrs. An- Anjemi. Anjemi. A-N-G-E-M-I. Yeah, um, she's, um... It's, and it's, like, MRS underscore... A-N-G-E-M-I. Like, it, it, I mean, only if you have, like, a strong stomach and you're, you want to see, oh. like, crazy medical photos or occasionally autopsy oh photos. Oh, my God. Sorry, guys. Okay. I was looking at one. I know. Can, <laughs> put it down because this will spiral Wait, for Wait, let, let me show you this. Oh! Oh, I... Yeah. I know, but... And it's hard because it's, like, real and... Yeah, so definitely have a strong stomach if you're going to look at that. But it's a really, really freaking interesting Instagram. She's a medical examiner. Is that what she does? Yeah. yeah. And so it's it's just an interesting look at the human body mm-hmm. and things that... I mean, some are crime scenes, some are accidents. It's just a wide yeah. range of all these different things. She's really cool. Well, and then I think the crazy... Because she also, since this is her job, she goes into detail a little bit. Yeah. And so you might see, like, a really gruesome photo. And when she starts talking about, like, what it actually is, she'll be like, this injury, not actually that bad. Yeah. And it's crazy. And I'm like, like, what? But his intestines were all on the outside of his body. How's that not bad? And it's like, oh, well. tuck him back in, sew him up. Yeah. It's basically just a hernia if your skin got cut, too. And I'm like, that's horrifying it is it's really nice <laughs> but we're not anyway. posting that kind of stuff yeah no we don't post that kind of stuff uh the or those any like real graphic crime no. scene or anything like that but um in my mind sometimes the worst photos are the ones that don't show anything gruesome or anything uh i'm still haunted by the one of james yeah that was the one i was thinking of i too. figured and uh, like to me that is the uh and I was actually talking to my boss at work about that case. Uh he listens to our yeah. podcast. Shout out, hey, what's up? <laughs> um and just yeah, that picture, that case it fucks uh, you up, man. It, yeah. It's there's I, no other that way to is, say it. That is the one that I I that one stuck with me the longest. Yeah. And oh my god. Yeah. Anyways. Right. I also oddly feel, I'm feeling the need to just 
remind listeners, hey, just, we're siblings. Just thought I'd... I feel like we haven't mentioned that in a while, and I know we have a lot of new listeners that have picked up and started listening to us and maybe don't necessarily read the description. I mean, it says siblings there. But yeah, that's true. I yeah. just wanted to make that reminder because we I don't know. even we don't, live together. We don't. We live in the same complex. <laughs> the same I live complex. like four doors down. Um, also, I'm super gay, so. It, yeah. Um, <laughs> just felt the need to yeah, no, make that fair. clarifying point again. Because Honestly, where we, were we? Well, oh, when we were at the, the Beto uh, oh my rally, God. this old man, he was like, he was like, do you two like each other? Y'all are y'all go like real well together or some shit like that. Yeah. Like, and, like and, he was being this old guy that thought we were two friends who were just didn't realize that we should really be together. And I'm like, dude, you made a lot of assumptions. I know. Him. And I'm like, uh, first off, I'm pretty sure I was like, okay, I'm holding the camera. Okay, Brittany, pose. Brittany, pose. Okay, suck it. Put your arm there. Okay, the sun is okay. Take a picture. And then we were laughing, very... you know, we were having a good time. No, nothing about it seemed <laughs> like, weird or like, it, until he made that comment, and I was just like, oh, okay, I'm scared to talk to you for like 10 minutes now because I felt so uncomfortable. I don't also, know. I'm just saying. I, we're siblings. We're yeah. siblings. Well, because I get that whenever I go out, even to like the grocery store, I have a couple friends I've gone with and we'll just be like, talking or chatting and like have a banter because we're talking and we're friends yeah and a sales associate will be like you guys are so cute together oh my god yeah you are the kind of couple that should get married and i'm oh, like oh god no yeah uh no thank you what we actually did this one time have a um sales associate at walmart um because we were like I don't know, buying toothpaste or something. And we were, like, being snarky with each other. Yeah. And the sales associate, she thought we were the funniest thing ever. And then after we, like, picked out our toothpaste or Slim Fast Shakes or whatever, and the sales associate was like, don't go, please, you're... Like, don't leave me. I love you guys. And we were oh, like, um... God. That's awkward. Yeah, we're we're going to go, like, now. Oh, um... Well, and that awkwardness is a perfect transition into this week's topic. Is it? Well, okay. Yeah, it is. Um, kind of. Bit of a stretch. Don't think she was, but okay. Yeah. Kind of. So, I was in charge of picking the topic for this week because yes. apparently I can't win an episode to save my life. But this week, I thought I would do... This week, something. <clears throat> something. So, this week, I picked stalker murders and this one is interesting because unfortunately it seems as if stalkers number one is someone taking taking their obsession with another person further than it should i mean i think the second you can call like an infatuation or a love something an obsession it's already too far no that's what no that's what i was saying is that you know an obsession that's already not great turning that into stalking is really going too far. Yeah. And then when you take that to a completely other level and incorporate uh, assault, um, violence in general, and murder, and mur- yeah, that it's, it's crazy how yeah. obsessive the human mind can be and how people just really, really, really can take things way further than they ever, ever should have gone. Yeah. No. And this one was this, I've, I've had a case that I've wanted to do. For months. And I'm not going to tell you what it is, but 
when I start, you'll be like, yeah, I remember you mentioning that. Oh, and this one you're doing today? Yeah. Oh. And when you mentioned this, I was like, yes, this is, this is my opportunity. So I'm really excited. I, I'm excited for this topic. Me too. When I picked it, I didn't realize how good it was going to be until I started doing yeah. my research. And I was like, oh, yeah. Yeah, because when I think like stalker killer, I like what first pops in my mind usually is like the horror movie, like scream, you know, someone's like knocking outside the house, yeah. like fucking with you and stuff, which is, I mean, it's a movie, so obviously it's interesting, but I was like, like that's to me not, I don't know. It's a movie, so it is interesting. To me, it's not that interesting. Yeah, I mean, well, when I saw it back in the 90s or whatever, when it actually came out, I thought it was interesting. See, Then they did two and three, and then there were all the scary movies, and I'm like, this is just, we're done. I actually have never seen Scream. I have seen Scary Movie, but... So, Scream, the first one, it's a super classic horror movie. I mean, it's not... It's I also not. Don't like. I don't like horror movies. Um, have you ever seen? I know what you did last summer. Uh, no. Well, that one's a good one too. You know what? It's you know we're getting closer to Halloween and all this stuff's pretty cool. So and the Texas Chainsaw Massacre house is like twenty minute drive away. What? Oh, did you not know that? What? Yeah, I am that... super scared, but also really want to go. Tell me more. It's the house for. I don't. I can't. Like the remember. one they filmed it at. Yeah. Yeah. It's like it's the house on the farm. I can't remember if um it's from the newer one or the older one. I think it's the older one because I think it's like kind of an institution at this point. Yeah. But yeah, it's like a twenty minute drive outside of Austin, and it's a house. I mean, it's they they built the set onto the property and the set's still there. Yeah. But can we it's go private property? As long, I mean, as long as you go like during the day and you're not like messing up the fields and stuff, like they don't really care. Yeah. Um, but I want to go. I had a, I had a couple friends that went, uh, this past weekend after they did the, uh, lantern lighting thing festival. Yeah. Uh, they went to the Texas Chainsaw Massacre house. They went at night. Ooh, creepy. And, um, one of them, she was like, it wasn't that scary. Like, I was like, okay, yep, that's the house. I mean, it's dark. So, and then she was like, and then we saw the barn and I was like, nope. I noped right the fuck out of there. I was like, nope, I'm done. Get back in the car. Nope the fuck out. Mm-hmm. Oh, my God. Well, I'm going to say this one more time. Can we go? Uh, sure. Okay. <laughs> awesome. Sorry, I had to, you know, tell my story. I know, but I just needed a, I needed confirmation because I, uh, I want to do this. You know what? I'll put it as a solid maybe. If there's a possibility that we're going to that house, and you know how much that movie fucking scares me, mm-hmm. I'm going to need some wine now. Fair. I will say, I think I've mentioned this before. I've only ever seen the original one from the 70s. I haven't seen the newer one, but well, I don't really scarier. want to. The newer one is more gruesome, yeah. which is what they started doing with horrors, yeah. making it more and more gruesome. I think the horror where you can't see what's happening and you just know what's happening, mm-hmm. so much scarier. Oh, absolutely. It kind of goes into what we were saying earlier about sometimes... The things that are not gruesome that you just, you know, you can context clues and read into what that means or what's happening is a lot scarier. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. That those are terrifying. There we go. Got it. Um, This one, I'm opening before describing anything about it. 
Oh, wow. (laughs) Sorry, I was just really excited. So, we're going to drink this, and then we'll tell you about it after. Yeah, bye. (laughs) I just realized for a moment, I was like, wait, this is backwards. I know, I... I just, I put the wine down just as we were talking. I was just opening it. Anyway, this wine, the wine that I'm cautiously optimistic about, is the Sterling Venters. Cautiously optimistic? I'll explain it in a sec. Okay. Uh, It's the Sterling Venters Collection Cabernet Sauvignon. It's uh, 2016 from uh, the California Central Coast. Mm Mm-hmm. So it has notes of blackberry, cherry, blackcurrant, and it's underlined with vanilla and spice. I like this label. Me too. It's kind of like... Feels like Kind of bougie, kind of simple, and it looks like a stamped metal. I had a friend tell me a really interesting bit of information this weekend, because we were wine shopping, and she was just saying that she likes to pick the wines with a simple label, because she feels like if they have to go crazy on the label, they're compensating for something, essentially. So she's like, okay. I, think, I think the best wines have the most simple labels, and I'm like, I can okay, see that. my favorite wines have it's, pretty simple labels, except yeah, for Brazen. The Brazen Old Vine Zen, it's mm. the one that has the tree that's made out of words, and it's yeah. like um, orange and black. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That is one of my absolute favorite wines. Mm-hmm. Also, really good price. You can get it like 15 to 18 depending on where you go. Okay. Um, it's like special occasion wine. Yeah, it's a special occasion wine. That one has uh, a very detailed label, but my other one that I've talked about multiple times is Saldo. Yeah. It's literally, it looks like a freaking like, tiny little like label a, maker. Yeah. Saldo. And that's it. It doesn't mm-hmm. say what kind of wine it is. It says nothing. And it's I love it. Hmm. Well, this wine is more in the price range of like, I think it was $8? I think it was 8 We got it at HEB. Yep. Um, not at TJ's this time. But, I don't know, I'm cautiously optimistic. It had some good reviews okay. reading about it. Um, but they said the tannins seemed very mild for a cab. So oh, like, hmm. so it might be lighter and more fruity. Maybe we're running into. We have been running into. I'm not. I was about to say the issue, and then I was taking that away. But we've been running into a lot of cabs in this price range that aren't as bold. Yeah, I mean, because I don't want something that is gonna like feel like I'm licking the outside of a tree. It's so many tannins, or like I'm chewing on pecan shells. Like I'm good. On, yeah, but I don't want a. You know, to be pouring a cab, I don't want to feel like I'm, you know, chugging a bottle of Hawaiian punch. Right. Or I don't want to drink a cab and it tastes like a Merlot. Well, okay, fair. I mean, just as a, you know, or Pinot Noir. Yeah. While I like Pinot Noir and while I have found some Merlots that I do like, I was surprised, but mm-hmm. I have found some that I like. I Not when I want a cab. Fair. Yeah. So, well, but now that you've scared me. Yeah, into what we're going to drink. Will you pour our wine? Because yeah. you've already opened it. Because we were <laughs> I know. very eager. Just letting it breathe. <laughs> Which, honestly, is not the worst idea in the world. It has a good color. No, it's really dark, really purple. You know, I love the color of red wine. Like, I really do. It's just, it's very pretty. It's like this perfect fall color. Yeah. I mean, I'm just really I would wear it. It's fall. Yeah, think about it's, that in like a sweater with black, black jeans. Ooh, yeah. and, and black boots. That okay. would be cute. It's it not was, fall. It was like sixty-seven this morning. Okay, 
I'm sorry, for October in Austin, that's it. Literally June in Seattle is what that is. And then it got up to like 82 today, which is much cooler than it has been, I will admit. I'm like, do you want 82 or you want 110? No, it's going to be fall next Monday because the high is supposed to be 59 next Monday. And I'm so excited. Well, it's like snowing in Oklahoma almost right now. Is it? Something like that this week. Oh. It's cold. As in like people are like putting on their house shoes. It It has a very strong scent. Yes, it has a really strong scent. I was trying to figure out what I thought that was. It's like tobacco. Okay. It's it has a very tobacco y so maybe this will be more cab. Maybe. We'll All see. Right. Cheers. Cheers. It does have Oh oh. Okay. Did you say it had harsh tannins? No, mild. I so what I Which I'm getting... obviously means I think otherwise. Yeah, and I don't think it has mild tannins. No, I wouldn't say mild. But it's not a heavy wine. No. It's one it's... that doesn't sit on your tongue, sit in your mouth. No, it doesn't. And make your mouth. Because to me, when I think of something with a lot of tannins, when you drink it, it makes your mouth like feel that dry. Yeah. You know? I don't necessarily get that from this, but it does taste... You know, I would... If you gave me a glass of this, I would be like, yeah, that's either a cab or, like, a really bold blend. Yeah, it has spices for sure. Honestly, for all the fruit they said was in it, I, I don't really I'm taste really it. I'm really not getting any fruit. No. Like, at all. It's, to me... No, I'm tasting, like, tobacco and leather and spices. Yeah. Like, this is a... Not a harsh wine, but it's a, um... It's not sweet. No. Yeah, because it says lush blackberry, cherry, and black currant. Which I don't... Underlined with notes of vanilla and spice. I got the spice. I did not get the vanilla. I don't get vanilla. I guess I can see the black currant in the way that... You know how black currant is a little, like, bitter? And, like, like a very... It has, like, a dense flavor that's not super overtly fruity. Yeah. So I, I can see that. I don't nec- I wouldn't necessarily say that that's what it is. I don't know. Interesting. Yeah. So, we got our wine. We got our topic. Tell me about your stalker murder. Yes. So, my case is the stalking of Mary Stoffer. Okay. I have not heard of this one. Yes. And it's it's an interesting one. Is it a doozy? Yes. Okay. So, the sources I used, Listverse, Wikipedia, Stalking Mary. Okay. ABC News, Rebel Circus, and Amazon. And some of these will make more sense as I'm going through it. Okay, yeah, trying to figure out how Amazon fits in there. Well, there's a book about it. Oh, okay. I feel as if maybe I don't need to leave that to the end. That's not like it's a surprising thing. But the, the book is called Stalking Mary. Oh, okay. Um, and it was written in 2010. Oh, so is your case like kind of a recent one? It's not, it's not. But let me jump into <laughs> it. So, Ming Sin Shui was a guy that was born in Taiwan in 1950. His family immigrated to Minnesota when he was just eight years old with his mom and two siblings. God, Taiwan to Minnesota. Yeah, I know. That's it's like tropical paradise. Taiwan's gorgeous, too. Minnesota's sky, great. Gorgeous but like, country. Yeah, lake country. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it's lake gorgeous. country and negative 40 winters. Okay. Oh, God. Yeah. So his dad had passed away three years later after they moved. He was a professor at the University of Minnesota. Oh, okay. So I guess he got the the gig, the family made the move. It's a huge 
freaking move. Yeah. But Ming was described as violent towards his younger siblings. Oh. He often beat them, both during adolescence and into adulthood. Oh, fuck. What a dick. Why? I... He had anger issues, clearly. Yeah. He also committed arson several times when he was a teenager. He'd start fires in um, three different apartments of strangers. Oh. And he threw rocks at vehicles. So he's just an asshole. He's a huge asshole. And for his role in the arsons, he was ordered to participate in psychotherapy when he was 14. Mm -hmm. And according to his mom's testimony, Ming lied but was very persistent about being right he was an uncontrollable child and took no responsibility for his physical behavior so she was scared of him fair she described him also as having no feelings like a dog oh although i feel like dogs have feelings so i don't really like her comparison there but i think she means like with the the empathy thing yeah um and he was also a pathological liar. This is very interesting. So just very short sidetrack. I've been yeah. watching this YouTube series. One of the YouTubers that I have followed for like 10 years at this oh, point. Wow. He's done a lot of these kind of like investigative, really just mini series documentary style where it's like eight episodes that are like 40 to 50 minutes each. Oh, wow. Um, And the one he's currently doing is he's diving into the mind of another YouTuber who is someone that people, like, hate. People fucking hate this other YouTuber. It's, I don't Jake Paul. I don't know if you've no, heard. He's, I don't yeah, know who that is. He's, like, 20. Anyway, and a lot of people are think he's a sociopath. And oh. so this documentary series, you know, it starts with him meeting with a therapist discussing like what is a sociopath and just you know then he starts interviewing like friends and family and yeah you know towards the end he interviews uh jake and it, it's just really interesting uh because a lot of the things that are um signs of being a sociopath or our sociopathic tendencies are a lot of these like not willing to take any kind of responsibility mm-hmm. or this lack of empathy and stuff. So anyway, that just reminded me of that. Interesting. Yeah. That sounds, and you're in the middle of that series right now. It's, I just finished episode like six or something. There's like two more episodes that are about to come out. You'll have to let me know how that goes. I will. It's yeah. It's like what I watch. I, cause it only, the, they, it, he put, puts out like two episodes a week. Or so. Oh, okay. And so the days it comes out, that's like what I watch on the bus ride home. Yeah. Oh, I totally get it. So Ming, kind of a messed up kid. Yeah. Troublemaker, to put it lightly. Yeah. So Ming attended Alexander Ramsey High School in Roseville, and he started to develop a crush on his ninth grade algebra teacher, oh. Mary Stauffer. Oh. Oh, no. He even had many sexual fantasies about her. Which, when Which, you put that in context of teenage boy, I know, is like, it I, there far-fetched? are definitely high school teachers that I had huge crushes on. Dear right. God. Right. When having I was crushes in high on teachers is. And normal. then when you're in adolescence, like, having sexual fantasies about them, I mean, you're. It's normal. You're 14, 15, yeah, yeah. Fine. Doing anything about that is so much over any kind of line. Yeah. Well, unfortunately, Ming did not just have a little crush. It morphed into a deadly obsession that lasted for 15 years. 
Jesus. Uh, Ming later wrote stories about all these sexual fantasies he was having with fictional characters from movies. And then eventually he started writing these fantasies about Mary, which included consensual sex, rape, and gang rape. Jesus. So he's getting out his obsession, writing these fantasy novels, short stories, whatever, and then he's yeah. getting really graphic with them. Oh, my God. So in the later years, so like I said, this obsession lasted 15 years. In the mm-hmm. later years of that, he started to not find like complete satisfaction uh, from his fantasies anymore. And so he decided he needed to kidnap Mary. Oh, my God. And throughout the 1970s, Ming attempted to track Mary down and relentlessly stalked her. So did this, like, him starting to act on it, like, this lasted 15 years, so he was, like, I don't know, 14, 15 when he was in ninth grade and met her. So was he, like, it is, when he got over the, um... Like, when the fantasies, the fantasies weren't, enough. weren't enough. and started yeah. to try to kidnap her, he was, like, what, late... Early 20s? Well, it was in, he was in his 20s. It was throughout the 70s. Oh, okay, okay. That he was trying to track her down and okay. stalking her. So in 1975, Ming located what he believed to be Mary's house. He broke into the house with a firearm, intending to kidnap her. However, she didn't live there. Her in-laws, oh. who owned the house, were forced to the ground, tied up, and threatened to be killed if they reported the crime. So he breaks into the house. Mary's not there, but it's her in-laws. Jesus. And because he threatened to kill them, the home invasion was never reported until the actual kidnapping of Mary took place five years later. Oh, my God. Ming continued to search for Mary during, like, from 75 to 80. And at this time, Mary lived with family in the Philippines, where she and her husband were working as Christian missionaries. So that's why he couldn't locate her. She was not in Minnesota at the time. She was in the Philippines. They returned to Minnesota in 1979. So in 1980, that's when Ming learned that Mary lived at the Bethel University campus, and he started to stalk her. On May 16th, Ming tracked Mary down. Jesus. So he had been paying very close attention to her. He knew intimate details about her and her daughter, things like her daughter had a doll that she really loved, I believe. Um, oh, he, he knew fuck. He knew that they were planning to go back to the Philippines, so this was his moment to act if he was going to do anything, if he was going to kidnap her. So he just, I mean, he was a professional stalker, to, yeah. I don't, to use a totally fucked up phrase. Yeah. But like, he literally knew exactly what he was doing, Jesus. and he, he knew all these details, and she had no idea. That, that he is was... so fucking horrifying. Oh, I know. I know. Um, so on May 16th, Mary and her daughter Elizabeth went to a beauty salon to get a haircut. You know, getting their hair done or about yeah. to go out of town again. They're walking back to Mary's car and they were approached by a man at gunpoint. And he pointed the gun at them and said, I need a ride. The man, who was Ming, got in the car in the passenger seat, had Mary driving, and Elizabeth, I guess, was just in the back seat. And so he's pointing the gun at, I believe, Elizabeth in the back seat. So Mary will do whatever he says. Again, she's driving. So she's driving along. And at one point, they pull up to a stop sign and there's a cop car behind them. And Ming says to her, I want you to turn left or right or whatever. And he's like, and if the cop goes the same direction, I'll kill you. Just like. Jesus. So they eventually pulled over. And um, Ming 
ties them up and puts Mary and Beth in the trunk of Mary's of her own car. Mm-hmm. You look like you want to ask a question. Well, I wonder if she recognized him. I mean, I guess it's been 15 years or whatever since he's no. been in her class. And she's a teacher. She teaches a shit ton of students a day, but... Yeah, no, she had no idea. Uh, she had no idea that this was one of her former students. So, like I said, he puts them in the trunk, he gets in the driver's seat, and he takes off. Ming covered Beth with a cardboard box, like, in the trunk, and at a certain point, you know, he's driving away, and Mary's able to get one of the ropes loose, and, mm-hmm. you know, she and Beth are back there praying. Um, Ming hears, like, the ruckus... And he goes in back and he checks on them and he sees that they're not tied. They're trying to escape. So he puts the spare tire on top of them to kind of hold them down. Fuck. And again, he gets back in the car and he's driving off and they're still making noise in the back and he's getting pretty pissed. So he pulls over and at this time it caught the attention of this six-year-old boy named Jason Wilkman who happened to be over at the park or wherever mm-hmm. he, he pulled over. And Jason walks up to the car out of curiosity because he's six years old and something's going on. There's all these sounds. Oh, God. Ming grabs Jason, threw him in the trunk as well. Oh, my God. So while the three of them are in the trunk, Mary and Beth are trying to comfort Jason. Because, again, he's this fucking six-year-old kid. How old was Beth? Beth was young. She was young at I this mean, time. young enough to, like, have a doll and stuff. Right. So, so maybe, like, ten, maybe okay. younger, maybe eight, something around that age. Okay. Um, so they're trying to comfort Jason in the back seat. They're all huddled together. <sighs> Ming makes another stop. When you know Mary this whole time is only thinking about Beth. And then once Jason's in the car, she's, you know, she's a mother, she's a teacher. She's a mom, she's, she's a teacher, yeah, exactly. She's literally thinking about these two kids. And... Does you know if Ming said right there is like I'll let them go if I can kill you? She'd be like, literally do it. Yeah, of course, of course. <sighs> well, I mean that's a very like teacher's sacrifice. Yeah, like I mean she's she's someone who literally not only gave her life to or like devoted her life to being a mom, but she devoted her the other half of her life to being a teacher and also raising kids in that way. So. Oh my god. Yeah, exactly. I that I'm sure there's just so much going through her head. Yeah. Especially when another child well, gets and also she to goes this. to she goes to the Philippines to be a missionary. I mean like she's l- literally so selfless. Yeah. She in is. in the little that I know about her. She very much is. So Ming pulls over at the Carlos Avery Wildlife Refuge in Anoka County, pulls Jason out of the trunk. And beats him to death with a metal rod. Oh my god. And, I mean, it's like Jason was a witness. Yeah. And Ming was getting rid of him. But he's six. He literally couldn't have said really much of value. I know. Ming gets back in the car and brings Mary and Beth to his house. Once in the house, Ming locks them in a narrow closet. He then proceeded to take Mary out of the closet and tied her to the furniture he talked to her for hours on the night of her kidnapping, disclosing who he was. So that's when she finally knew it was a former student. Yeah. And he repeatedly raped her. God. He recorded the conversations and the rapes on his video camera with Mary. Jesus. And 
Ming ended up holding Mary and Beth captive for 53 days. So almost two months. It's Jesus! Yeah. Mary was raped and tortured continuously during this time. And of oh. course, Ming would threaten to suffocate Beth or hurt her or, you know, just do yeah. things to Beth to torment Mary. He would cover Beth with a plastic bag, promising to kill her. It was oh. one of his forms of torture oh. and torment. Um, when Ming would talk about how he was a former student, he said that Mary gave him a B in algebra and it was what blemished his otherwise perfect record. And because of that, he didn't get accepted into a good college. He didn't get a scholarship. Because he got a B? Mm -hmm. uh, honey, that's not the reason that you didn't <laughs> get into the good college. There's lots of things that could be reasons. One B... I promise you, if you have a 3.99, Harvard is cool with that. If you got a good grade on your SAT or whatever and shit. Well, apparently Ming did not think so. Wow. But, so he blames her for not getting into a good college, and it left him no choice but to enlist in the army and go to Vietnam, where he suffered horrific violence at the war. He was a prisoner of war. So this is what he's saying to her, and this is why it's all her fault. Did that... Wait. Turns out, that was a load of shit. Okay, that's what I lie. was thinking. Because I was like, but I thought he was stalking her that whole time. Yeah, he was. Okay. He made what that up. What the fuck? He so he's not only... Up. I mean, obviously this is just like a tiny little sprinkling on what all the fucked up rape and torture and kidnapping that he's done. Yeah. But he's also... You know, pretending to be a veteran with PTSD. Well, remember, I said he's a pathological liar. Yeah, that's, like, you did. So, I mean, he, yeah, he's just literally making shit up. Fuck this dude. Yep. So, while they were kept at his house, they were most of the time separated. So, Mary and Beth were not together. Mm -hmm. He put Elizabeth in a box in his van for eight hours when he was at work. Oh, my God. While Mary was left locked in the closet inside the house. Ming told Mary that he would kill her husband and son if they ever tried to escape. Because, he, like, again, he knew all about her family and everything. Yeah. So he knew there were more. He admitted that he had all these violent sexual fantasies about her. Well, to he's her. already been raping and torturing her. I think she I probably figured that part out. Right. And then he did also later admit to being obsessed with her and stalking her. And, yeah. Which obviously she's clearly already figured that out with how much he knows. Yeah. Back to baby little Jason. He had been playing in the park with another little boy when he disappeared. So he was not alone. Yeah. That little boy ran home in tears, told his parents that a man took Jason away. Smart kid. Super, super smart kid. Because I'm assuming little kid's probably also like six or whatever. Uh, yeah. I'm yeah. sure he's very young, the same age as Jason. God, smart kid. Because um, also two six-year-olds playing in the park, it's 1980. Like, that's not... No, that's, that's not, not weird that there's not a parent watching them because... Not at all. Well, first graders just like, you know, fucking play in the park. Like, yeah, go for it. Yeah. Well, and that is one thing that... It will forever break my heart how protective we as people have to be of mm -hmm. children nowadays and it's, and it's, because there's we don't there's no trust. So there's no trust, and you can see things that like like the crime rate and the violent crime rate rate has gone down. It peaked in I believe the '60s and '70s, and it's been going down steadily ever since. We are safer today than we were in 1980 
And yet, there's still so much more of a culture of locking your doors and watching your kids. And Yeah. Well, and it's that mentality of, yeah, I can let them go play at the park by themselves. They'll probably be fine. But if they're not, you'll never forgive yourself. Yeah. Because you had that thought of, should I let yeah. them? I don't know. Whereas if it never crossed your mind, like, oh, of course, go to the park. Then it's less of like a, I did this kind of thing. Even though, I obviously, don't think it's, it is. I mean, probably not. And of course, it's obviously not your fault. It's whoever did the crime. Like, let's yeah. be fucking real. But yeah. anyway. So, at the same time that, you know, this little boy is like running and telling his parents or whatever that someone took Jason, the police are also investigating the disappearance of Mary and Beth. You know, they never came home from their hair appointment. They were reported yeah. missing. And there was quickly um, a connection that was made between. The disappearance of Mary and Beth and the disappearance of Jason. Yeah. Or in the, I mean, in the kidnapping of Jason. Because the kids saw him grab him. So they knew that was a kidnapping and not necessarily a disappearance. Yeah. So on July 7th, and again, remember, they've been with him since May 16th. Jesus. Ming's at work. And Mary was able to figure out how to remove a large pin that was locking her in the closet. Mm -hmm. So some type of locking mechanism that Ming had put together on the outside. Is she tied up in the closet or is she just, like, in it? She does have restraints on her. Oh, okay. She does. So she's somehow, like, I guess able to wiggle her way out. I mean, she got some of the restraints off in the trunk that one day. That's true. So she gets the door unlocked. She goes and gets Beth. And they go into the kitchen at Ming's house and they call the police for help. After they made that call, they went and hid behind the car at Ming's residence until the police arrived. Because they were hiding. Like, they didn't know when he was yeah. coming back. They were immediately freed when the police arrived. Oh, my. They got... They were rescued. Yeah. Oh, God. Yeah. Well, I was just... I'm thinking the whole time, like, holy shit, he's going to get, like, home first or... No. They were oh, rescued. God. When they were rescued, they were both still in chains. And there's a photo that I saw of them. They had, like, chains around their waist, captured, like, hands together. Jesus. Um, so, they were rescued. Shortly thereafter, on the same day, Ming was arrested at his workplace. I mean, they knew exactly who it was. They could easily go get him. And while he was in jail, he still had not given up his obsession. He offered $50,000 to another inmate, a man named Richard Green, to kill Mary and her daughter to prevent them from testifying in court. Oh, fuck. And to help Ming escape from jail. Yeah. Oh, God. Green communicated the information to the FBI. Oh, thank God. Good guy. I'm sure. Good guy inmate. Good inmate. I'm sure he got something out of it, but also. Well, even if he didn't, honestly, if you were in jail because you got a DUI or because you shoplifted and this dude is like, I'll pay you $50,000. You murder these people. You get me out of here. You're going to be like, um, no, um. And I have no idea what Green did to be in jail, but I just know he went to the FBI and it's like, yep. Yeah. Good choice. So. When they're um, on trial, yeah, Ming's on, on trial for the murder of Jason and the kidnapping of Mary and Beth. Mary took the stand to testify against Ming. Yeah. He stood up from like where he was sitting on the bench or whatever, and he lunged at her and slashed her face with a knife. Oh, that, my God. That he had managed to smuggle into the courtroom. Oh, my God. It took 62 stitches to close her face. It was right around her mouth. And, you know, when he was doing it, he promised to kill her and her daughter whenever he got out of prison. 
Oh my god. Um, psychological evaluations of him showed no signs of mental illness, so he was fully aware of what he was doing. Oh, okay. And she was, of course, left with a very large scar on her face because of this attack. Oh. But could you even fucking imagine that? Like, she Like, he's already been captured, and she still wasn't safe she, from him. Like, yeah, at that point, she... I mean... It's not over, but she's safe at this point in her mind. And, and she's, she's not. not. If he had been, you know, what, a couple inches lower, he could have slashed her throat and she could have died. Like, yeah. yeah. Fuck. So no idea how he was able to smuggle in a freaking knife. But this was in, like, the mid-80s or whatever. Yeah. But in the end, Ming was sentenced to 40 years in prison for the murder of Jason and then given an additional 30 years for the kidnapping of Mary and Beth. Oh, good. So basically, he'll be in jail forever. Well, oh. he was declared eligible for parole on July 6, 2010. Oh. And during that um, court hearing, he apologized to Mary and said that he had a, a schoolboy crush on her. Uh, No. On September 28, 2010, the Anoka County District Judge Jenny Walker Jasper ruled that Ming would not be released and would spend the good. rest of his life in prison. Oh, good. He still appeared to be a threat to society, even though his attorneys argued that he was no longer a danger. This district judge was like, uh-uh, no. Yeah. He's not getting out. So, and like I said, there has been a book written. Um, it's on Amazon. It's got like a four and a half star rating released in March 2010. The premise of the book is when he's eligible for parole. And it was before oh. that hearing in 2010. So, the author, Eileen Bridgman Biernat. So, she's telling the story of Mary and Beth and Ming's oh. obsession with Mary and this is when there's a possibility that he's going to get out later that year. Yeah. So thankfully that didn't happen. Oh. But there are just so many details that Eileen goes into. Um, just like I want to read that book. I, I do too. It's obviously a true account. Yeah. Um, God. And yeah, and in, in this book, she uses like court documents. She watches the videos that fucking Ming took of the rape oh my and the, God. all the conversations um, and all the audio transcriptions, personal interviews, thousands of pages of Ming's sexual fantasy shit. So Jesus. she really, really gets into the detail and paints a very harrowing God. picture of I will say these though, two families. Just fucking hats off to the experts like that that will sift through just so much of this fucking evidence and this horrible shit to find like the truth or to be able to tell this story like I know that's that's insane because even just the the research we do is hard enough it's hard enough and we spend an incomparable amount of time oh yeah like you I can't even compare it to what she she spent probably years thinking of this case basically every moment of every day yeah well, and sometimes these authors like Michelle McNamara, who wrote I'll Be Gone in the Dark, which is about mm-hmm. the Golden State Killer, mm-hmm. but she gave him that name, Golden State Killer. Oh. And she helped the investigation, like, really come to a resolution. Like, she was a big part of what kept yeah. that case alive. Oh. And unfortunately, she passed away before his capture. Oh. But, like, her book came out 
God, I think it was right before they found him. And oh. I really, really want to read his book because yeah. it's like her book comes out and then bam, they got him. And it's just like, Fuck. anyway, but yes, like hats off to all of the investigative journalists oh. and the oh people who dedicate their time to getting things solved, like all the detectives. Like, Fucking... There are so, so many people in yeah. so many hours that well, go also behind just this. Journalists These in people. general, too. Just like... Just being able to yeah. be an investigator in your and that be your craft is just... I know. Fucking... That's incredible. Well, and I feel like sometimes in school, people who go to school for journalism get like shit. Like, oh, okay, you want to write oh. stories. But then you see the people that are going like on the front lines in mm-hmm. Afghanistan to be able oh, yeah. to report the news just so we know what's going on here at home. Or you see people that do so much investigation and diving deep... And uncovering these stories of corruption and political scandal and just all this shit. And dying for it a lot of the time. And the, yeah, and it's Unfortunately. insane. But I also want to, you know, fucking cheers for Mary and Beth. Two of the that fucking, like, strongest people I've ever heard of. Yeah. There are a lot of videos that you can watch. I mean, Mary is insanely strong. And I feel like a lot of that has to do with her background as a teacher and as a missionary and just being able to see the bright side of things. Yeah. I'm just so amazed and so I feel empowered when hearing these stories of such like these strong women like it. I know. God. Yeah. And I I don't want to overshadow, you know, Jason's murder. Yeah. Because because that was he was. A completely innocent he was a bystander six, that yeah, wrong place, wrong time. Curious six-year-old boy who got murdered because he saw something funny or heard something funny going on with this car that stopped near the park. Yeah, like it's it's just so unfortunate. And there was I listened to an interview, um, just a little snippet of it when Mary was talking about. I think this was in 2010 and getting to spend time with. Jason's family and just because they have this bond this unfortunate bond and and thankfully they're not like Jason's family is not approaching Mary and Beth with hatred yeah it is of you know you survived this and unfortunately Jason did not but well and I just the fact it could so easily go another way it could have but the fact that the last moments of his life like yes he's terrified but But he's being comforted by these two women because i'm sure that beth and like and beth who was just a yeah. couple years older than him well and i'm I'm sure that she you know played the role of like you know the older sister at this point and was yeah. also comforting and mary's there so at least he wasn't alone he wasn't alone and i i think that's important agreed but agreed with that I'm going to jump into my case. Yeah. And um, here in a couple moments, you'll hear me in the background opening that second bottle. Because we're almost done with these glasses. Yes. So my case is the murder of James Brady. James Brady. Why does that sound familiar? You'll see. Okay. So the sources I used were Wikipedia, the History Channel, CNN, and an article written by Professor Douglas O. Linder. The Trial of John W. Hinckley Jr. All right. So, John Hinckley Jr. might ring a little more of a bell. Ding, ding, ding. 
John Hinckley Jr. was born on May 29th, 1955, actually in Ardmore, Oklahoma. Really? So, you know, the the place that we've been to seven trillion times. times. Yeah. Um, I mean, but only to the loves. It, true. Only the loves to get gas. And Exit 32. Swap. Off I-35. Woo! You're welcome. That was free promo loves. Yep. That was right there. Um, his family moved to Dallas, Texas when he was four. This is all too close to home. I hate it. Well, I, know. <laughs> I didn't realize how close to home that I was like, oh. I mean, this was not when we were alive, but. I mean, fair. But he was the youngest of three children and born to a workaholic oil executive and an agoraphobic stay-at-home mom. Oh. It, from an early age, he was very clingy and very dependent on his mother. Oh. So, Hinkley grew up in University Park, Texas, and during grade school years, he played football, basketball, hockey, soccer, and baseball. Oh my god, he did, like, everything. Um, and he learned to play the piano, and he was elected he class president twice. He did ev- yeah. He, he was the, literally, like, Mr. All-America, basically. Yeah. So, after graduating from high school in 1973, his family moved to Evergreen, Colorado, it was where their business was headquartered that they owned. He was an off-and-on student at Texas Tech University mm. in Lubbock from 74 to 80, but eventually he did drop out. I mean, he tried to stick it out for six years. I know. And then did it. But also, it's tech, and it's in Lubbock, so... Yeah, ew. Sorry. Although, apparently, Lubbock, amazing place uh, for wine. It's oh, like no, it's one the, of the soil. Yeah, and I'm like, well, it's well, soil and the of, climate. It, it, like, has that very, that yes. dry Mediterranean type. So I get it. Well, a lot of the wineries in Hill Country get some of their grapes from Lubbock. Which is just crazy, because I've been to Lubbock once uh, to tour college. To, to, I toured Texas Tech when I was in high school. And weirdly, I brought up both colleges I toured when I was in high school. In this uh, episode. In this episode. Really weird. And I was like... The college is nice. This town is, it's just almost desert. Yeah. Well, and I will say, this makes me want to look in to see if Lubbock has wineries that'd be worth visiting because that could be cool. Yeah, but it's on the other side. Not that Lubbock's cool, like it's just saying. It's in Texas, like us also. It's like a six-hour drive. Yeah, which is ridiculous. Eh. Anyways. So Hinckley went to Los Angeles in hopes of becoming a songwriter. Uh, his efforts uh, were unsuccessful, and oh. he would write to his parents with tales of misfortune and pleas for money, because oh, he's man. a starving artist. Yeah. So while he's in Hollywood, that was when he first saw the movie Taxi Driver, and this seemed to give him dramatic content for to his misery and his meaning to life. You know, kind of how a lot of bro guys feel about Fight Club today. He saw Taxi Driver and was like, that's me. Those have you ever my seen struggles. Taxi Driver? I actually have not. I haven't either, so um, I guess it I, would help if I knew what it was really about. Well, I'm going to jump into I'm going to give a little short summary. Oh, okay, good, good. So, 15 times over the next several years, he watched Taxi Driver. Okay, um, you, that's really not that many. I mean, it's a lot, but you said 15 over the next several years. I mean, I guess fair. I, if you said I'm 15, someone who doesn't like movies, so I know if you, you don't, don't count Titanic, 
Because I have seen that way more than 15 times over way more than several years. Yeah. Uh, but, yeah, I'm just saying. So, in Taxi Driver, the character Travis Bickle, who's played by Robert De Niro... Yeah. Uh, ...contemplates political assassination and then rescues, through a lot of, like, violence and shit... A vulnerable young prostitute named Iris, who is played by Jodie Foster, uh, from the clutches of her pimp. Oh. Um, oh, he... Okay. Yeah. So, in the movie... We need to watch this. I know. Like, literally need to have a taxi driver movie night. We should. So, in the movie, Hinckley seemed to just find clues that helped him to escape his depression. And oh. he began to adopt the dress, preferences, and mannerisms of Bickle, uh, De Niro's character. Okay. Uh, like Bickle, uh, Hinckley began keeping a diary, uh, wearing an army fatigue jacket and boots, drinking peach brandy, and developed a fascination with guns. So he just did it all. Yeah. So in letters to his parents back in Colorado, he described a fabricated relationship with his girlfriend Lynn. Oh, okay. Oh. This so he Lynn, made Lynn up? He made Lynn up. Lynn is Lynn he's writing to his exist. parents about Lynn and how <gasps> much in love with he, her he is in this relationship. Lynn didn't exist. Lynn actually shared a ton of characteristics with uh the Bickle's initial love interest in the movie, uh who was a campaign worker named Betsy, who was mm. played by Sybil Shepherd, actually. Yeah. Oh, God. Well, she's been in a ton of stuff. I know. She's been in Hollywood for fucking ever. I know. Well, and she's still making things. I think the last thing I saw on her filmography was like 2017 or whatever. Like last year. She's still going. Killing it, Sybil. Um, Anyway, the most significant thing that he got from this movie, though, was he began to develop a long-term obsession with Jodie Foster. I mean, fair. Yeah. No, just kidding. That's terrible. She's literally like 12. So. This is an interesting perspective on the stalker thing because mm-hmm. I feel like a lot of people will garner an obsession with a celebrity. Mm-hmm. Like, that is a very normal... I don't think I was ever obsessed, but I know I was, like, fucking in love with Justin Timberlake as a kid. Yeah. Like, enough to where... I mean, come on. I'm going to say this because, like, all teenage girls did this or, like, young, preteen. Not teen. I'm, like, 17 years old <laughs> and doing this. No, like, when you're, like, 10 to 12, like... Kissing magazine photos that you put up on your wall, and it's... Okay, I was gonna say, I thought you were gonna just go with, like, how you had an entire wall that was magazine clippings of, not just Justin, but, like, other things. It was all in sync and Britney and... yeah. yeah. Manny Um, Moore, all of them. Well, because I, in, like, middle school and stuff, I was obsessed with Carrie Underwood. You were. I loved her. Obviously not in any kind of, like, sexual way because, again, gay as fuck over here. Yeah. But I had a big-ass, like, Got Milk poster that, that covered, was like, an so entire wall. big. Like... How'd you get that again? I think... I think Sydney got it for me. That I think she... Right. I know. That's... <laughs> that's some... That's so Sydney that it she is. would see something. She's like, that would make a perfect gift for my brother. I'm gonna get that. Because I think I think yeah. it was from like her school or something that they were getting rid of it, and she was like, "Can I have that? My brother would love that." Oh so. my god! But yeah, so like we've all had a healthy amount of obsession with a celebrity, yeah. once in our life. But no one can deny that. There's there's a difference between 
like the kind of fandom obsession where if you saw them walking out of a restaurant, you might scream and cry. Yeah. And then this kind of obsession. Oh, yeah. There's a big fucking difference. Jumping back in, in September of 76, uh, Hinckley returned to his parents' home in Evergreen, Colorado. So when I said he was like on again, off again at school from 74 to 80, he tried a couple times in 74, 75, went to Hollywood, came back, tried a little bit more, went back to his parents. Yeah. Like it, it was very much on again, off again. Yeah. With the school. I don't know why I keep using the phrase on again, off again. Like there, it's a relationship, but it is. (laughs) It's his relationship with school. With academia. So during. I don't know why the way you said that made me think of. The Great British Baking Show. I don't know. I, I feel like I've heard him talk about people's backgrounds and academia. And I don't know. It was your tone. It was everything. I love that show. Go watch that show. It's wonderful. They make delicious baked goods. And Mary Berry's not on it anymore. I know. I don't want to watch it anymore. I, I think, I I think Paul Hollywood's not on it anymore either. No, I, I thought he was in the last like, oh, is preview he? I saw. Oh. If they got rid of Paul Hollywood too and Mary Berry, I think they I got rid of... Do this. Yeah. But anyway... Susan is our youngest baker this this cycle. <laughs> She's working on her A-levels and is 17. I learned baking by watching me mum. It's my impression of the show. I'm, and I apologize pretty... to everyone from uh, England and the United Kingdom and Europe as a whole. Because Tyler can't do an accent. I mean, I really can't do one, so I'm not even going to try. But I'm just saying, for like wow. to make it completely believable... Also, we're praising the show. It's fucking amazing. It is. I mean... Literally all of those things they make, I'm like, I want that. I know. I need that in my and life. And it's these people being like, well, I've been baking for years. Like, ah, uh, you know, I just... I mostly, like, bake for my kids or my family and stuff. But I guess here's a 35-layer Queen Mary torte with a, a crystallized caramel coating. And I fucking made the fondant by hand and shaped it into... Diamonds. I don't fucking know. I know. And I'm like, and wh- how did you just look at a cookbook and do that? I know. Or not even look at a cookbook. Yeah. You just like, knew it. God. Also, didn't mean to shit on your accent. It's It was great. It was I just probably not. I don't think it was real. It, well, I mean, obviously it wasn't real. real. <laughs> Sorry. I, Brittany, I don't know how to tell you this. <laughs> uh, I'm also from Texas. <gasps> I've never heard you really say that. <sighs> It it pained me. I think I felt part of my lung die when I said it. Well, that's weird. I don't know why your lung's dying. But. <laughs> so, anyway. During the late 70s and the early 80s, Hinckley began purchasing weapons and oh, started God. practicing with them. <gasps> um, oh. At the same time, he was prescribed antidepressants and tranquilizers to deal with his emotional issues. Oh, that's safe. Yeah, you know, you know guns and emotional issues. We could, we could really open issues. a huge conversation right now that I don't want to go into. The conversation will happen, I promise you, because of what the case is. But it'll happen at the end. Okay, we'll talk about it at the end. I'll just prep my lines. And Yeah. So, in the summer of 1980, Hinckley told his parents that he had a new career goal. He's going to be a writer. So, he asked his parents to pay for a writing course at Yale. I almost feel like this sounds like me in the sense of like, I'm going to do this. No. I'm going to do this. No. I'm going to do this. Oh, I hope not, because of what I'm about to say. Oh, no, no, no. I was just taking that one instance of the indecisiveness of the job. I mean, whatever. No one actually knows what they want to do. Talk to someone who's 50, and they're like, well, 
I'm a senior marketing director at this job, but I really would like to be a skydiving instructor. That's what I really want to do. Fucking do it. I mean, honestly, yeah, you're never too late to start your career over, let's be real. Like, there's people that fucking start their career over when they're 60, and they're fucking rock stars, and they're killing it. Yeah, which I guess I have always been in the realm of marketing, except for my first job. Wasn't really marketing. Yeah, and I've always, because I've also, same, I'm always, you know, is this what I want to do? Well, is that what I want to do? But it's all generally in the realm of HR. Yeah. So. So I guess I'm not a complete, like, bouncing around, but. No. Feels like it from my end. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Podcaster. Um, Future career. Hey. Future career. You hear that, guys? So, Hinkley never actually intended to enroll in a writing course. He wanted to go to New Haven, Connecticut because of one Yale undergraduate, Jodie Foster. Wait, she was that young in Taxi Driver? She was, I think, 12 in Taxi Driver. This is a few years later. Obviously, like I said, I haven't seen Taxi Driver. He was obsessed with a 12-year-old. Yeah. What the fuck? And he was like 20 or something. Yeah. Yeah. Like sexually obsessed? Uh, yes. No. Sexually obsessed and no. just in love with her. Just, no, yeah. It, that's so it's wrong. Fucking horrible. Um, oh so my he, God. So he was like, Mom, down and be a writer. Give me some money. I want to go to Yale. And they also, said, okay. Was he like smart? It, did he get accepted to Yale? Or did His... he like pretend he got accepted? So he did. I have good grades from high school. His family was very wealthy. Oh, so they could so, easily have an in? Yeah. They could have had an in. I'm not sure um, how he got into Yale, into Yale if it was academics. Ale. Ale. <laughs> if it was academics. Like if it was if it was just money. Yeah. I'm not sure. Either seems plausible. With $3,600 of his parents' money. Also, doesn't that just break you? A lot. $3,600 is a semester at Yale in the early 80s, but whatever. A semester or a year. Who knows? But yeah, with $3,600 and, you know, promising to tell them he's going to work diligently at Yale. This is his passion. He's going to make it. He set off for Connecticut on September 17th, 1980. Oh my God. We've never both picked older cases. I don't think. Yeah, no. Because I usually try to find more recent cases, but... Not this time. So, once Hinckley started at Yale, he began slipping poems and messages under Jodie Foster's dorm room door, and he repeatedly called her. No, so fucking creepy. After failing to really develop any kind of meaningful contact with her, Hinckley fantasized about conducting an aircraft hijacking or committing suicide in front of her just to get her attention. Oh my god, dude. Oh, he's literally obsessed with her. I want to get her attention, so I'm going to kill myself. Yeah, I don't know how that works out, but yeah. So eventually, he settled on a scheme to impress her by assassinating the president, thinking that by achieving... Yeah. His thought process was uh, he can achieve a place in history, and he would appeal to her as an equal. Because they're both historical icons, which I love Jodie Foster. 
I think she's an incredible actress. She's not a historical icon. Yeah, I know. When I'm thinking historical icon, I don't necessarily I mean, think, think Jodie like, Foster. I think fucking Abraham Lincoln and Martin well, also, Luther King Jr. I don't think Jodie Foster at like 19. Oh, right. Like, because and this was before This is before a like Silence of the, of the Lambs. Yeah. This is, yeah. Yeah. God. So oh Hinckley God. began to stalk President Jimmy Carter at campaign appearances. And in a three-day period, he visited three cities where Carter rallies were held. D.C., Columbus, Ohio, and Dayton, Ohio. And although assassinating the president was, like, very clearly on his mind, he would later explain that at the time he was unable to get himself into a frame of mind where he could actually carry out the act. Something that's fucking creepy. There's actually video that was taken at the Dayton rally that showed Hinckley getting within 20 feet of President Carter. Which and is not doing anything? Horrible. He didn't do anything. Oh my god, that's scary. So in October of 1980, and this is maybe, what, one or two months into the semester they started. Yeah. He was arrested at, I believe, the Nashville airport, um, which was near one of uh, President Carter's campaign stops for carrying guns. Oh, but God. the Secret Service was not notified, and afterwards, really? yeah, because that surprises me. It's it, the gun laws and the culture of guns was very different in 1980. I mean, it was. I get that, but um, but so afterwards, Hinckley just went to a you know he paid his fine for the crime and he just went to a pawn shop in dallas and bought more guns so for the next several months his plans they changed daily you know he thought about kidnapping jodie foster he considered killing senator edward kennedy and he then began stalking kennedy that was either assassinated or almost assassinated poor family um and then he began stalking the newly elected president ronald reagan Oh, my gosh, because he still had that idea of if I kill the president. Yep. So, on October 20th, his $3,600 from his parents has run dry. He's exhausted all of it. Yeah. He flew home to Colorado, where his parents were just extremely disappointed in his failure to carry out his promises yet again. Yeah. And so, they're just, you know, he... Tried to go to Tag. He tried to go to Yale. He's just, they're like, what are you doing with his life? With your life? Um, and after Hinckley overdosed on some antidepressant oh, medication, my God, his parents arranged uh, to have him meet with a local psychiatrist. Yeah. So the doctor met with Hinckley several times over the course of the next four months, but learned nothing of Hinckley's thoughts to assassinate the president. <sighs> And oh learned just god. very little about his obsession with Jodie Foster. Oh my god. But the doctor urged his parents to push Hinckley towards emotional and financial independence. You know, basically yeah. cut him off. He needs to figure out how to be he an needs adult. needs to figure it out, yeah. So his mental health, just, it didn't improve. And it, yeah. it deteriorated. It got oh worse. Oh god. Um, oh my god. Yeah. So he flew across the country to D.C., where Ronald Reagan was staying, New York, where John Lennon had recently been assassinated, and to New Haven, where Jodie Foster was. 
I hate this. Like, I know whatever you're about to tell me is going to happen is horrible. I just hate that he didn't get the help. Mm-hmm. Even seeing a psychiatrist. He saw a psychiatrist, but through either purposefully manipulating them, through just not being able to get the help he needed, through a multitude of reasons that could have been the reason. I, I, I don't know. I know. So while he was in New York, Hinckley seriously considered killing himself in front of the Dakota Hotel. Oh, where Lennon was shot. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Sorry, I totally interjected. But... Oh, no, you're... Yeah. yeah. And that's exactly <laughs> why. Because that's where Lennon was killed. He wanted to kill himself right there. Yep. Yeah, make like a statement yeah. or something. And on New Year's Eve of 1980, Hinckley recorded a very disturbing monologue in which he spoke of not really wanting to hurt Jodie Foster, um, his fears of losing his sanity, and the likelihood of Suicide City if he failed to win Foster's love. During this monologue, he is holding a gun to his head like the whole time. <gasps> it's it's Wait, is it a insane. video or a recording or what? It was it was an audio recording, but they he would later like tell them. Oh, that, oh, wow. So, like, when they were listening to it the first time, the movie didn't realize he was holding a gun against his head. But, yeah. And it's it's insane. I've I've seen some excerpts of it that, I mean, it's it's the rant, it's just rantings of just how much he fucking hates the world, how much he loves Jody, just his obsession. And it really, it dives into his psyche. And you get kind of a snapshot image of where he is that... It's well, it's kind of horrifying. No, no, no. I was going to say, clearly, there's more going on with him than just his obsession with her. It's like, that's how his mental whatever is, um, it's like focusing on this one thing. Oh, absolutely. So, Hinckley returned to Colorado for the last time on March 7th of 1981. Uh, his dad met him at the airport, and he told him... That he would not be allowed to go home to Evergreen anymore. Wait. His dad was like... He met him at the airport when he was just arriving. His dad yeah. was like, nope. His dad was like, we're done. You you can't <gasps> come home anymore. Oh my god. So his dad gave him $200, which he used to pay for motel rooms in Denver. That he just kind of... He, he sat in, he watched TV and read, and he just... Nowadays, I'd buy you one night. I know for real. I'm like two hundred dollars. You go to a motel, sick. I will. I remember being younger and young enough to pay attention to motel prices. So I was probably like thirteen or whatever. Yeah. And it being like thirty six dollars a night. And then I remember in um, college, in f- like freshman year, renting a motel, um, and. It was like ninety dollars. It was like a Motel Six or something. I mean, it yeah. was like a, it was a nicer motel. It wasn't like GrungeCity.org, but it was. Yeah. But I'm like, fuck. That's for ninety dollars. So yeah, John is spending his dad's money oh on motel rooms, just like sitting there not doing shit. So unbeknownst to his father, mm-hmm. Hinkley would visit his mom several times during oh, this time. Oh, they're frame. in Evergreen. Yeah. So, on March 25th... I think I've been to Evergreen. I don't know where it is. It's in Colorado. Yeah. But I don't know. It just sounds familiar. I really think I've been there with my friend. I've been to Colorado Springs and then, uh, like, Alexander... No. I don't know. The mountains and then the Denver airport. Yeah. Which, 
I plan on going to Denver in January. Mark my words, it's gonna happen. You should. Denver's because amazing. I have friends trying to convince me to move there, and I have siblings trying to convince me that I would love it there, and I want... My idea is if you visit a place that you see yourself as maybe I'll live here. In like the worst month of the year. Yeah, you should go during yeah. the worst time. That's so smart. That's so fucking smart. Yeah, because if you can enjoy it and love it then, then you're going to be fine. Like yeah. if you wanted to move to Seattle, I would be like, cool, visit in like November when it's raining every day and it's like 40 degrees constantly. And I did and I didn't want to move there. Oh, yeah, you did. You came for Thanksgiving. <laughs> yeah, well, you were wrong because it's amazing. Anyway, John's visiting his mom there in Evergreen. Yeah. So on March 25th, uh, she drove John to the airport in Denver. And during the drive, it was like virtual silence. Oh. Like they didn't speak. Because she's also very disappointed in him. But she's still being motherly. and Yeah. He still has some sort of a relationship with her. Yeah. So at the curbside in front of the terminal, he's reaching for his suitcase and he says to his mom, I want to thank you, mom, for everything you've ever done for me all of these years. And his mom said that she felt fear climb into her throat <gasps> when she replied, you're very welcome. <gasps> oh my God, that's a weird reaction. I know. Like, ooh. But that's a weird thing to it. say. It's a weird thing to say. Because it must have been the way he said it. It sounds like something that could be said of like... Honestly, it sounds like something that would be said before someone plans on killing themselves. Yes. Like, that's the Which vibe I, I get. Which I see fear and coming. Yeah. Yeah. But she didn't try to stop him or anything. Um, but also, again, he's just saying thing. Which, I'm going to just take a moment here and back up. And it, I see often people that will say... You know, someone who, you know, commits this crime or whatever, you know, they're going to blame the parents because they must have had a horrible childhood. Right. Terrible upbringing. And while there are definitely people who go through horrible abuse and horrible things with their parents, sometimes, you know, the, the people that do commit these crimes did have that kind of upbringing. But just because someone does a horrible thing does not mean they had a horrible childhood. From everything I read no, and researched, agreed. he had a fine childhood. Yeah. Maybe sometimes his dad was distant because he was an oil executive and he was very career focused. Yeah. But his mom, from what it sounds like, his mom was always there. You know, his mom was pretty much a stay-at-home mom taking care of everything. So, like, don't fucking blame the parents every time something happens no, that's true. horrible. Because well, and it's like, while... Our upbringing can be, you know, they're the formative years. They Absolutely. do influence who we are as adults. It's not, it's not a blame game. Mm -mm. You don't blame the parents for things that go wrong. No. While sometimes they could be at fault, that's not the always case. Absolutely not. And also in cases like this where we're going to get into the, the tragedy that occurred, but just... Imagine being that parent that yeah. raised this child who grew up to be an adult that did this horrible thing. Yeah. Because you're going to think every day, where did I go wrong? And in a lot of cases, you didn't. You didn't, you didn't go, wrong. go wrong. No. Sometimes people are fucked up and do fucked up things. But anyway, sorry. I 
No, that's, I wanted to. Uh, it's have a that very good track. thing to point out. On the afternoon of March 29th, mm-hmm. Hinkley checked into the Park Central Hotel in Washington D.C. Mm-hmm. And after a restless night, he got up the next morning, had breakfast at McDonald's, all American choice. Mm-hmm. And on the way back to his hotel, he picked up the Washington Star newspaper. Oh. And he noticed the president's schedule indicated that Reagan would be speaking at the Washington Hilton in just a few hours. So the way you said that, I'm like, the president's schedule, like, they print his schedule in the paper? No, that's exactly what they did. What? They would print his schedule in the paper? Not, like, his daily schedule, like, 6.55, have coffee, 9 a.m., meet with the U.N. Like, no. They But they did, like, if he was traveling or doing public events, they would well, release his schedule. Yeah, obviously the public events or would even, be there. I get that. But, like, like, this is, he's having a speech outside this hotel, and they're like, ah, this is what he's doing. But it was, they had much more visibility then. Right. I really just don't think that would be, it's more like you report it after the fact. Now. Absolutely. So, Probably because of this, I'm assuming. Uh, yep. Yeah. So Hinkley got in the shower, he took a Valium to calm himself, and he loaded his twenty two with exploding Devastator bullets that he had purchased nine uh, months earlier at a pawn shop in Lubbock. Dangerous. Uh, yeah. What's a Devastator bullet? So, they're the kind of bullet that once it enters, like, the target, <laughs> it, explodes. it explodes. Oh, like, my God. Like, it shreds. They do that for, like, deer and stuff, yeah? Yeah. Yeah. Which, I it's I have so many horrible. fucking issues with, but, yes. Oh yeah, so. God. Although, if it, if it makes, like, a death, death quicker, then maybe that's not a terrible thing for a hunter to use. That's fair. It, I don't think it does. Oh, well, then that is fucked up. That adds more pain. I think it makes it... Well, I mean, I guess it would. I think it makes it to where if you not miss, but, like, hit off target, it could explode and still kill them. Oh, the trap could still get them. So, yeah, it would still kill them instead of them just being shot, but I hate it. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. I don't... I don't like guns really in any capacity at all. But, yeah. I don't either. So after he loads his gun, he sat down and wrote a letter to Jodie Foster. Oh my fucking God. And I'm going to read the letter in its entirety because it is a good snapshot into his, his mind his at the time. His mental mindset, yeah. Mental mindset. Yeah. Okay. Dear Jody, there is a definite possibility that I will be killed in my attempt to get Reagan. It is for this very reason that I am writing you this letter now. As you well know by now, I love you very much. Over the past seven months, I've left you dozens of poems, letters, and love messages in the faint hope that you could develop an interest in me. Although we talked on the phone a couple of times, I never had the nerve to simply approach you and introduce myself. Besides my shyness, I honestly did not wish to bother you with my constant presence. I know the many messages left at your door and in your mailbox were a nuisance, but I felt that it was the most painless way for me to express my love for you. I feel very good about the fact that you at least know my name and know how I feel about you. And by hanging around your dormitory, I've come to realize I'm the topic of more than a little conversation, however full of ridicule, however full of ridicule it may be. At least you know that I'll always love you. Mm. Jody, 
I would abandon this idea of getting Reagan in a second if I could only win your heart and live out the rest of my life with you, whether it be in total obscurity or whatever. I will admit to you that the reason I'm going ahead with this attempt now is because I just cannot wait any longer to impress you. I've got to do something now to make you understand in no uncertain terms that I'm doing all of this for your sake. By sacrificing my freedom and possibly my life, I hope to change your mind about me. This letter is being written only an hour before I leave for the Hilton Hotel. Jody, I'm asking you to please look into your heart and at least give me the chance with this historical deed to gain your respect and love. I love you forever, John Hinckley. That's creepy as fuck. Yeah, which is why I was like, no, I I need to read this. Uh, yeah. I am looking at pictures of her right now. Oh my god. In Taxi Driver? Yeah. Yeah. So he, at this point, I think he's 25 and she's 18. Which, so he's seven years older than her at this point. And he's been obsessed with her for years now. He's... I mean, look at this. She's such a child. She's literally like a 12-year-old. Like, yeah. Oh, my God. So at 1.30, Hinkley took a cab through a light drizzle on his way to the Hilton. At 2.25, accompanied by aides and bodyguards... Reagan left the hotel and began moving towards his waiting limousine. A voice in the crowd yelled, President Reagan! President Reagan! And as Reagan turned to see, you know, who was shouting his voice, Hinckley emptied six bullets in rapid succession. (gasps) The first bullet tore through the brain of press secretary James Brady. The second hit policeman Thomas Delahantney in the back. The third overshot the president and hit a building. The fourth shot hit Secret Service agent Timothy McCarthy in the chest. Oh my god. The fifth shot hit the bulletproof glass of the limousine. Mm -hmm. And the sixth and final bullet nearly killed the president. As aides were rushing to push Reagan into his car, the bullet ricocheted off of the car and hit the president in the chest, grazing a rib and lodging in his lung just inches away from his heart. You know, I often forget that there was this assassination attempt on Reagan. Oh, and, absolutely. And I don't mean this to come across the wrong way, but I think a lot of it is because it was unsuccessful. Yeah. That I don't remember it as much as the ones that were. Yeah. Like when I did JFK a, a few months ago and... Well, I don't know. Because you also don't ever think about President Andrew Garfield, who was assassinated. That is true. Or Teddy Roosevelt, who was shot and continued his speech. I knew that one. I knew, but, but you think of... You th- okay, I will say. You, you think, think of Lincoln, Lincoln and, and JFK. Yeah. Yes. You think of those two because they were, at least historically, the ones that were the most profound and the ones most talked about. Yeah. And it's not that... Well, because also this guy almost took a shot at Jimmy Carter. He did. Like, so that was essentially another assassination attempt. Yeah, absolutely. it's all these other attempts and circumstances that we don't think about, but there's been a lot. Oh, there have been. And, I mean, there's there's a whole Wikipedia list on attempted presidential assassinations. 
And even looking at the President Obama list, there's like eight or ten entries of people who were planning things and got arrested. Oh my god. I mean, there's people who were threatening and got arrested or talked to police, but there were definitely ones where people were planning and it like plans were set in motion that no, thankfully the Secret Service or local police or whoever caught them before anything happened and it horrifying. Fucking horrifying. It is, and I honestly don't ever want to know what it feels like to go through a presidential assassination. Me neither. Like, like just the though, fear of like that's the most powerful person in the in my country just being killed. died, just got killed. Yeah, no, that's just horrifying. Yeah, jumping back into the assassination attempt. Yeah. At first, everyone assumed that. All the bullets missed Reagan, and he was fine. He got in limousine. They headed for the White House. But within a few seconds, he started coughing up blood. The limousine changed course and sped towards George Washington University Hospital, where Reagan underwent two hours of life-saving surgery. Oh, my God. Hinckley was still clicking the trigger on his twenty-two when Secret Service agents wrestled him to the ground. So he fired six shots because that's all there was. And he just kept fucking clicking as they tackled him. As they tackled him. Oh, my God. And you said it was the fifth or sixth bullet that hit Reagan? Sixth. It was the final bullet. Wow. Wow. All of the shooting victims survived the initial attack. But although Brady survived, the wound left him with slurred speech and partial paralysis (gasps) that required the full-time use of a wheelchair. Because he was the one who was shot through the brain. Right. But I'm glad he survived. Did well, he have bad quality of life? He... I'll get to it. Okay. His neurosurgeon described him as having difficulty controlling his emotions while speaking after this shooting. Um, oh. And said that he would kind of cry talk for a while. And he suffered deficits in memory and thinking. Such as failing to recognize people. No, that's the worst. That is, I mean, and this is along like the same lines of like Alzheimer's. That's so crushing. There were dozens of witnesses to the shooting. Oh, yeah. And it, it was captured on videotape. Oh, my God. So the government knew, as well as John Hinckley's defense lawyer... Uh, the, the only plausible defense moving forward was insanity. Insanity, of course. So when the psychiatrist reports came in, there, there weren't any surprises. All of the government psychiatrists concluded that Hinckley was legally sane oh. and that he appreciated the wrongfulness in his act at the, the, at the time of the shooting. Really? He was sane. But the three defense psychiatrists diagnosed Hinckley as psychotic and legally insane at the time of the shooting. So the prosecution is saying he's he's sane. sane. The defense is saying, no, he's not. Yeah. So further evidence... I will say I lean with the defense. Me too. I mean, not that I think what he did was okay by any means, but clearly mental illness was present. Yeah. So further evidence of the severity of his mental problems came in May, two days before his 26th birthday. When <gasps> he was he, so young. Yeah. God. He was 25 when he tried to shoot the president. Wow. But more evidence about his the state of his mental issues came two days before his 26th birthday when he attempted suicide by mm. overdosing on Valium. 
And then again, in November, he tried again by trying to hang himself from his cell window. Oh, God. Hinckley insisted that his lawyers get Jodie Foster to testify in his trial. What? Yeah. If they didn't make every effort to do so, he would refuse to cooperate in his own defense. Um, I cannot imagine being her, being approached with this and being like, what? Yeah. Which, like, I guess she did receive all the letters, so she's not completely she's, like she knows what's going on. Who he is, she knows him as the weird guy who really likes me and is sending me these letters. Yeah, but again, she's fucking like eighteen at this point. I like, know. God. So eventually, his lawyers arranged with Jodie Foster's lawyer to have her testify in a closed session with only the judge, lawyers, and Hinkley present. So the tape of this could later be introduced into evidence at the trial. And when Hinckley received news, he excitedly told his parents, Mom, Dad, I'll be right there in the same room. Oh my god. I feel really bad for him. I mean, like, I know what he did was disgraceful and terrible, but I feel really bad. He very much has... Like, he needs help. He's not okay. He, He needs help. Yeah. So on March 30th of 1982, authorities took him to the federal courthouse in Washington for Jodie Foster's videotape testimony. Mm -hmm. The testimony just really disappointed him. He didn't receive a single glance or word on his behalf from her. Uh, Because he was thinking this would be the time when she would, like, confess her love for him. Yeah. And she didn't look at him. She didn't say anything about him. And as she finished her testimony, Hinkley hurled a ballpoint pen at her and yelled, I'll get you, Foster. Um, and then Marshall surrounded him and hauled him off from the room. But wow. how fucking terrifying all of this must be for her. I know. She's literally like, you know, I'm an actress. I'm in school. This dude tried to assassinate the president to impress me. And now I have to testify. What the fuck? No, yes, seriously, what the fuck? So on June 21st of 1982, just seven weeks after the start of his trial, mm-hmm. Hinckley was found not guilty by reason of insanity. Oh, okay. So he was committed to St. Elizabeth's Hospital in mm-hmm. Washington. And soon after his trial, he wrote the shooting was the greatest love offering in the history of the world. And he was disappointed that Jodie Foster didn't appreciate his love. Yeah, and it this uh, ruling was hugely controversial. And it had a huge backlash. There were a lot of states and areas that reversed and changed the laws around being able to have an insanity defense because of this. Because so many people were outraged that someone could shoot the president and in their mind get away with it which in this case i'm like i disagree i disagree because he is this is an interesting case Mm -hmm. i disagree because he's clearly there is mental illness Mm -hmm. going on absolutely and then it's it's the degree of because it was the president that made people think Mm -hmm. otherwise i mean at least from my perspective that's how i read this as I mean, because if it was, you know, Henry down the street, 
then people would be like, oh, oh well, he's yeah, mentally he's ill. Mentally Ill but the fact or even if it was like the mayor of the city, if it was someone in a position of power, it would still be like, oh, he's mentally ill, but because it's the president. Which is that... like, that's one thing that we have to note. The position of the victim does not denote it mental has illness no or bearing. not. It has no bearing. It, it doesn't change the mental culpability of the no. the um, person who's attempting the assassination. Absolutely not. And by no means are all or even the majority of uh, people with mental illness violent in any way. But that's not something you can discount in this case is that no he was he had seen psychiatrists before he had a pattern of behavior and he had the warning signs like he was very clearly from from my research from everything i've seen he very clearly did suffer heavily from mental illness yes because of that suffering and because of the way he coped with it and dealt with it he committed this crime and to me that is the type of person who yes, should be going to a hospital that can focus and help him Yeah. in this area. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So, in 1999, Hinckley was permitted to leave the hospital oh. for supervised visits with his parents. Um, and he was granted longer supervised releases in 2000. These privileges were actually revoked when he was found to have smuggled materials about Jodie Foster into the hospital. No. So this is almost 20 years later, and he still has that obsession. Oh, my God. So Hinckley was again allowed supervised visits with his parents in 2004 and 2005. Mm -hmm. And court hearings were held in September of 2005 on whether he could have expanded privileges to leave the hospital. Yeah. On December 30th of 2005, a federal judge ruled that he was allowed visits that were supervised by his parents at their home in Williamsburg, Virginia. Oh, so they moved. They moved. On August 4th of 20... to be closer to him, I wonder? I don't know. Because I... they were in Colorado. They were in Colorado. And then he but was at this being point, held in Washington? He's being held in Washington. At this yeah. point, they're both retired, so probably... Yeah. On August 4th of 2014, James Brady died. Oh. So, since Hinckley had critically wounded Brady in 1981, and because the circumstance of his death and the fact of him having these issues from the shooting, the death was ruled a homicide. Wait. Oh, my God. After that long? After that long, because he died from the long-term injuries and complications from the shooting. Wow. But Hinckley did not face charges as a result of Brady's death. So Um, they ruled it a homicide, but he did not face charges. Well, he had been found not guilty um, of the original crime because of insanity. So So they couldn't go and change that. He's also found not guilty of this. Yeah. So on July 27th of 2016, a God, federal judge keeps ju- going. Sorry. Oh, I know. Sorry, go ahead. A federal judge granted Hinckley full-time convalescent leave from St. Elizabeth's mean? Hospital. So he's allowed to leave full-time, be out of the hospital as long as he lives with his mother and he has certain restrictions. Huh. So he's 
more or less free. Yeah. Um, so he will carry a GPS equipped cell phone at all times and will be monitored by secret service agents. And as of today, he is living with his mother and as part of his release, he is excluded from using alcohol, possessing any firearms, ammunition, or other weaponry. He can't have access to printed or online pornography, uh, CDs, or other access to violent music. He can't speak to the press, and he has to work at least three days a week. He can drive no more than 30 miles from his mother's home, or 50 miles if attended. Um, and he must see a psychiatrist at least twice a month. His internet use is also subject to limitations and scrutiny, and he's not allowed to erase his computer's web browser history. How old is he now? He, so he was born in, like, 55, I believe. So, he's in the 70s he's, now? Uh, yeah, 63 or something yeah. like that. Yeah. Oh, God. So, back to James Brady, because I do want to focus on I want to end this yeah. focusing on the victim of this murder. Yeah. Um so James Brady along with his wife Sarah who served as the chair of the Brady campaign to prevent gun violence, they subsequently lobbied for stricter handgun control and assault weapon restrictions. The Brady Handgun Violence Prevention Act, which is also known as the Brady Bill, yeah, uh was named in his honor. And the Brady Bill mandated federal background checks on firearm purchasers in the United States and imposed a five-day waiting period on purchases until the NICS system was implemented in 1998. So the reason that we have federal background checks and stuff is because of this. The reason you can't just walk into a pawn shop and buy a gun and ammunition and be totally anonymous anymore is because of this. Yeah. Um, and this was signed into law by President Bill Clinton on November 30th, 1993, and it went into effect on February 28th of 1994. Wow, okay. And that, um, that law is they've... still in effect today. Yeah. Obviously, the NRA opposed it because they're a bunch of fucking assholes. Yeah. Well, when you're the type of person who sees children escaping a, sh- a school shooting, and you're like, oh, well, they are a crisis actor, they were paid to be like this. You're a fucking asshole. Uh, yeah. I don't even know how to respond to that. I mean, yeah. yeah this case is some, is one of the big reasons why we have some of the firearms laws that we do today. Yeah. And even if fucking assholes want to scream and cry and throw a fit about them, they're important and they're good. And you shouldn't be able to walk into a store and be like, one gun, please, and get it. No, I agree. But Well, and there are so many things that I think should be put into place as far as, you know, if someone has a mental disability, if something is mm-hmm. going on that maybe they need further assessment before they're allowed to have a firearm. Yeah. I think that should be put in place and yeah. it shouldn't, even with the restrictions that are in place of like, you know, show your ID, et cetera, blah, blah, blah. Although I will say... I have gone to a shooting range and gotten a gun and gotten the ammunition, and I never even had to show my ID. Well, they didn't well, even know my fucking name. 
That's so fucked up. I, I know. So I really, I do not like guns personally. No, I yeah. think we would all be much safer if we had much stricter gun laws that they were pretty much outlawed. Yeah. Except for law enforcement. Yeah. Well, and Although, I will say, in you know, like I said, I have been to a shooting range. I have shot a gun. It was one of those things that I wanted to know how to operate one because yeah. I never know what's going to happen. No, Do I want to own one? No. Do I like holding no. one? No. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I, as much as I feel that way... I understand that that is not what our country is. Right. Well, and you much... went to Boy Scouts. You know how to shoot a gun. Yeah. No, yeah. I've I've shot a lot of guns. I've yeah. been to gun ranges since I was like 10 or something. Yeah. But I do not I do not like guns, but I understand that that, that just because that is my opinion and that is my that is where I feel does not mean that that's that should be how it is. Right. But stricter gun laws you know, being able or being a part of a registry when you do purchase a gun. So it's known that so-and-so has a gun. Yeah. That it's not that people don't slip through the cracks, that this person has severe issues of violence and outbursts and should not have one is not communicated to the proper authorities because there's different lists and different states and different shit. Right. Absolutely should not happen. Right. Absolutely should not happen. And you should not be able to have a gun that can shoot dozens of rounds and fucking flatten a festival in Las Vegas. Agreed. I do not like guns. That would be a deal breaker in any relationship. If if someone was a gun person, I'd be like, nope, uh uh-uh, we can't be together. Hard pass. But... To, it's also important to recognize that that is some people's lives. Some people yeah. grew up hunting. They grew up learning how to safely yeah. use a gun as a child. They grew up that safely you know, being this the is exa- exactly that like this is not a toy. In the same way that we, not in the same way, but in a similar way to how we grew up knowing that. The knives that go into the sharpener cases, those are not toys in the kitchen. We, You don't fuck with those. You do not play with those. Yeah. But, and there are people that have grown up that way their whole lives. And the guns are an important part of them. And that's totally valid. But holy shit, y'all. There are so many... There are so many cases that we wouldn't and shouldn't have to have on this podcast... If we had better and safer gun laws. I know. I think that would change so much. There are so many lives that could be saved on every side. Just everywhere across the board. That could be saved if we just had common sense about it. We should jump into postmortem. We should jump into postmortem and... I am going to go ahead. While my case was very big and very far-reaching effects... Holy shit, you won. Like... You think so? Oh, absolutely. Fucking little baby Jason, Jason, Jason and fucking Mary and Beth. 53 days? Yeah. Kidnapped with it? I can't. These were two very intense cases. Yeah. I'll take the win. Haven't had one in a while. But, true. These are always like... It's so weird to how to respond. They're to, like, all bittersweet it's because very... you're like, "Oh, cool, I won," but 
I hate it. I won. I had the worst case. Like I had I the, hate it. I had the more fucked up because I know. Well, and like I said, when I picked this topic, I never anticipated it being such no. an intense episode. Well, same. And it, and it was when I when you picked this topic, and I thought, "Holy shit!" I'm gonna do John Hinckley. He was obsessed with Jodie Foster. He tried to kill Reagan. Like that. That was about all I knew. And then you looked at and then it. going into it and getting into his background, getting into just the general background of the case. I was like, "Holy shit!" This is so much more than I ever imagined. Yeah. And there are a lot of documentaries. I didn't watch any documentaries on this. I have a couple pinned. Yeah. To watch. To watch later, for sure. Fuck. I'm going to watch those with you. Yeah. But this, I, I want to fucking read Stalking Mary is the book. Mm-hmm. I want to read <sighs> it, too. And this was an episode that I think reaches further and, and think thinking about, I don't know, like, Stalking is seriously yeah. a thing, and obsession is a thing, and it has borderlines with mental illness, and it really Absolutely. stretches further than you would think on just a... When you think of, like, stalkers, like, oh, the people who, like, creep around, it really goes so much further than it that. It goes so much deeper. And, and we'll, we'll yeah. like, make fun of us and be like, oh, I'm going to Facebook stalk someone, or I'm going to... Well, okay, I will say cyber stalking is something I looked into. Oh, it's, it's huge. And that is absolutely going to be another episode because yeah. it's different. It's a different level of it's stalking. It's so, yeah. Because it is so easy to find information. And, oh, absolutely. And maybe it's easy to make assumptions about what mm-hmm. you think you know about that person when mm-hmm. you see them online. So, Well, and it's one of those that you can... Say, like, oh, well, you know, millennials and everyone just puts everything online. And you you don't have to be someone who puts anything online. You can still find addresses and phone numbers and shit. Yeah. And it's insane. But I think this has been a very long episode. Yes, I want has. to thank y'all so much for listening to this. Hope y'all enjoyed it. I really enjoyed this episode. Me too. Um, don't forget to rate and review us on iTunes. Yes. Help us get up in those rankings. Um, give us that five stars. Just, yeah, give us five stars. We appreciate it. Yeah, give, give us, us a Give written, us a little paragraph or sentence. Let us know what you think. Because honestly, we're probably going to print it out and cry about gonna, it. Like, because that's it. kind of what we do we at love this it. point. We love so. it when y'all let us know how much uh, you're appreciating what we're doing. and Literally hearing from y'all, getting that feedback is just incredible. It is. And make sure to like and follow us on our platforms. Yeah, we mentioned earlier, Facebook, yeah. Instagram, Twitter, like go find us out there. And just and reach out to us if there's if there's a case that you found uh that yes. you are really interested in. We are always open to recommendations. Oh my god. And we love getting ideas from you guys. Well, and if there if you just want to say hi, if you literally want to get us on, on Facebook and be like blood and wine podcast, hi. Do it. Do it. I mean, will Brittany will literally text me, or I will literally text her, depending on who sees it first, and then we'll scream about it, and then we'll reply. Honestly, I love you guys so much. Love you guys. Y'all are awesome. Y'all are amazing. Thanks for everything. Yes. Blood and Wine signing off. XOXO. Bye. Bye.